listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Hello! Welcome back to Animal Party on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Deb Wolf, coming to you from Camp Good Dog, where we have a litter of standard poodle puppies. So cute. Just got their first vaccines. Little red fluff balls, apricot fluff balls. If you want to see them, go to Facebook, Camp Good Dog. There's a link here. And check them out. They're just so cute. We post footage every day. So today, today I'm not going to be talking about breeding dogs or standard poodles. Today we're going on a little bit of a a different journey back in time to the Second World War. And we're going to be interviewing Sue Belanda, who I'm definitely going to have back on the show in the future to talk about scenting dogs. Because Sue is an expert trainer and trains dogs to find the scent, find the duck, find the goose. Maybe even find the person. And we'll talk about that in the future. But today I want to talk about her new book. It's called Faithful Friends. And it tells a story that just hasn't been told. The stories of the pets of the Jewish people who died in the Holocaust. What happened? What happened to that family that lived in a house with a golden retriever and a cat and then all of a sudden they're off to the ghetto or the camp or death? What happened to those pets? Did they live? What, what happened to them in the meantime? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Welcome to the show, Sue. Thank you so much for having me, Deb. Oh, it's a great book. I mean, really great book. Really hard to get through without tearing up, though, i got to say. An emotional ride. Was it emotional for you writing it? Yes, it was. Actually, what I found, I interviewed a lot of the people on the phone, and some of them were by email. And... Um, What I found was that, without exception, the people that I talked to really thanked me for caring enough to ask and for giving them closure. And I thought about that, and I figured, why, after all these years, would these people thank me for giving them closure? You would think they would have had some prior to that. But when you think about what was happening at the time of the Holocaust, all the horrors, all the cruelty, all the fear the missing family members, the torturous conditions people lived and died in. Nobody wanted to hear a child complain about the loss of a pet. So they didn't get the support. They didn't get the opportunity to grieve for that family member. As we know today, they are as much part of the family as the person is. And the people that I talked to, obviously, were children at the time. And this was their beloved pet. Nobody gave them the opportunity to grieve for that. And maybe they didn't always feel the need to grieve at that time, but then later on it struck them. I get that because even now, even now, all of us in modern times, you know, if you have a death in your family, you get bereavement, you get sympathy. When your dog dies or your cat dies, people think you're a little loopy if it takes you more than a day or two to get over it. I mean, they don't send you condolences cards and they don't appreciate that you're going to be upset and kind of with a hole in your heart for a while. Imagine back then. I mean, we think of you know, war times and places all over the earth now with war. Who cares about the dogs and the cats when your kids are, you know, being shelled and, and shot at, right? Like that's, and I get that. But at the same time, that little girl, that little boy who was carted away wondering what happened to his dog or his cat is now a grown up, still wondering, right? And did you give him some answers? 
Well, I couldn't answer what happened to their particular pet because I couldn't do that kind of research. But Mm -hmm. a lot of them did find out what happened to the animal. But the point is that nobody gave them the opportunity to talk about it. That's what I gave them. And they cared enough to ask. And that's what they kept thanking me over and over for. And the other reason I wrote this book is that it's because it's about animals. I had hoped that some young people, that the Holocaust and World War II is just a chapter in a history book to them. I hoped it would bring them some personal connection to understand what happened during that time to these people. Because even though I am not Jewish myself, I owe a lot to my Jewish friends and I have a deep love for them. And like they say, and I say, we should never forget. So my book is a way to keep that period of history alive. I really appreciate that. I mean, my kids, I don't know how I'm going to teach them about the Holocaust. They're 8 and 10, so it's coming up. And it's a big, heavy topic. And I've already started a little bit. They have an idea that things were really bad and that it's not always safe for minorities and countries. And, you know, they've kind of got some background to it. But normally when you're teaching it or when you're trying to discuss it, it's just the numbers are so overwhelming. The, the large scale of, of the problem and it, it can seem so foreign to a kid. But this, a kid imagining being like Anne Frank, being like a normal kid in a normal family, and all of a sudden the police come and take you away and you have to leave your dog and your cat behind. That's an easy way into the study of, right. of the top. Right, and that was the movie, The Diary of Anne Frank, is what inspired me to write this book because they hid their cat with them. And if the movie... Oh my God, it's such a risk, hey? Can you imagine? Like, they all must have agreed on that. Everybody in the whole thing must have agreed to hide that cat, and that cat would have been a, a huge liability, right? Don't you well, think? Yeah, because they, if you recall, they had to live on the third floor in an attic. But what people don't realize today, there was no insulation in the flooring. It was just bare planks. And there were factory workers or workers in a business right below them. So during the day, they had to stay perfectly quiet. They couldn't run the water. They couldn't use the bathroom. And how are you going to keep a cat from jumping from a table to the floor or knocking something over? Or even like sometimes my cat will meow at me because she wants something. And, you know, so they risked their lives in essence, to hide the cat. And then they had to feed the cat, which they couldn't just go down to the store and get food, and they had to have some way for the cat to relieve itself. And if you recall, it was more than just the Franks that were hiding there. There was another family with them, and it wasn't a very big space. And I thought, well, what about the other animals? What people, you know, these people risked their lives to hide their cat. There had to be more stories, and that's what inspired me. And it took me years to track down the stories that are in this book. And I had hoped after the book came out, other people would contact me with even secondhand stories. But that has not happened because I was hoping to find out more. My book deals with dogs and cats only because those are the only stories I got. But people love their horses, their their other cats, their birds. I mean, I would love to get stories about some of the other animals that they owned everything that we own today. I sure hope people listening to this show, if they know anyone who has a story for you, and even a snippet of a story, even a lost pet, it doesn't have to have a happy ending. Any details at all about pets and people being separated because of the Holocaust, I hope they'll contact you. Where can they contact you? Let's give that out right now. I know we're going to post it. It'll be on the website at Pet Life Radio for, for easy clicking, but in case someone's just listening 
something on their way to work or something. And where can they go? All they have to do is Google my name and they'll find me. My email address is sbulanda, that's B-U-L-A-N-D-A, at gmail.com. So it's very easy to find me. But if they Google my name or, or sbulanda.com, they'll get to my website. I'm really hoping you get some more stories. So the book is full of these stories. And we're going to take a little commercial break. And then we're going to come back and, well, I, I'm going to ask you to pick... Just pick one and tell us a little bit about it when we come back. So stay tuned, everybody. We're talking with Sue Belanda, author of Faithful Friends, and it's stories of pets and people and what happened to them, how they were separated in the Holocaust. Stay tuned on Animal Party on Pet Life Radio. Don't go anywhere, because the best is yet to come. Stick around. Your dog digs a hole under your fence, and the next thing you know, protect your pets with Dig Defense, the amazing new product that keeps your pets in the yard. Dig Defense is safe, fast, and easy. Each unit is made from 4-gauge galvanized American steel and can be used for repairing digouts, filling gaps, or to hold fences down so pets can't get under them. Dig Defense provides peace of mind that your pets are contained humanely and safely. Visit digdefense.com today. D-I-G-D-E-F-E-N-C-E dot com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. You're inside the VIP room. With the hottest party in town. Back to the party. Let's go. Hello. You're back on Animal Party Pet Life Radio. And we're talking about something that's a little difficult. It's about people and pets being separated. It happens all the time in wars. It happens in natural disasters. It happens a lot. It happens even in divorce. But in this particular case, we're talking about the Holocaust. Lots and lots of Jewish families were torn from their homes, their communities, killed, very few survived, but also they lost their pets. And Faithful Friends is Sue Belanda's book about some of those stories. So, Sue, can you share with us one of the stories? Well, my favorite story is the one that has a happy ending, because they don't all have happy endings. But my mm-hmm. favorite one is about a French bulldog in France. And this dog was quite a character. And I was fortunate enough to actually get a copy of the woman's journal because she had since passed on, but her family sent me her journal that she kept and a picture of the dog as well as his pedigree, which is very rare because most of these people, everything was taken from them. They had no pictures, nothing. I know. Imagine hanging on to your dog's papers with all that. Your house is on fire. You've been moved. People in your family are being murdered and you keep your dog's pedigree. I mean, these people really, really love their pets, didn't they? Well, they did, and and I'm not sure whether she was able to go back home after the war and get them or how she kept them, but she kept them. Anyway, she had this French bulldog, and she tells the account of getting him and trying to survive with him, and what really struck me, though, was this. Her husband was not a Jewish person, and he turned her in to save his own butt. And the Germans came to her house. She was in the garden, and they pointed their guns at her. And like she said, she could hear them clicking, you know, cocking the rifles, and made her stop where she was. And she had her dog with her, and she had to leave him in the garden. They took her away, and and she had to leave him outside in the garden. Well, in jail, where they put her before they shipped her off to Auschwitz, 
in jail, she convinced a German soldier to go back and take care of her dog for her. And can you imagine being in that circumstance and that worried about your dog? Well, the thing is, he did. He went back, he got the dog, and the dog, you ready for this? The Mm. dog wound up touring with the German army for the rest of the war. And when when the Germans had to retreat, he couldn't take the dog with him, so he turned the dog loose. Some people found the dog who miraculously still had his collar and tags on him and were able to reunite her with her dog. And I think that is just such a phenomenal story. That gives you goosebumps. That's just amazing. There, You know, recently in the um, explosion in Japan and the waves, there was a dog and a woman separated. The dog's name was Mae, but it was a male. It was like a shepherd cross. And they showed the footage. You know, she lost her house. She lost everything. She said everything floated away. And they showed the footage of her and this big shepherd cross hugging each other. And the tears were <laughs> pouring out of her eyes. You know, she never thought she'd see him again. He was floating away, right? Yeah. I mean, but that's just so, so powerful. What a great story. A good ending. But yep. I'm sure they're not all good endings, right? Can you tell us a little bit more? Maybe share another story. Well, there was one dog and I forget his name right now offhand, but there was one dog that, there was one family who were trying to run away. The Germans caught them. They had three dogs, actually, and a mother and two pups, but they were not little baby pups. And um, when the Germans were, were making them take their jewelry off and give up their possessions, the woman's mother couldn't get her ring off fast enough, and the German hit her. Well, the, one of the dogs attacked the German. And he stabbed the dog and killed it. And then the family started yelling to the two pups to run away, go away. And they did. And eventually, as I recall now, eventually they did get reunited with one of the dogs. But these dogs, quite a few of them had to to survive on their own. And not just to find food for themselves to eat, because don't forget that in most of these countries, food was scarce. It's not like today where you run down to the supermarket and buy canned goods. I mean, you had the butcher, you had the the baker, you had the Oh, and there were shortages, right? There were lineups. This is wartime. That's right. That's right. And then you got to think also there's there's mines, bombs, guns, there's shooting. The dogs are freaked by that. I mean, they're hiding, they're hiding, they're hiding. That's years of hiding, right? Fires being started. I mean, this is not cool. This is like picture the, the old TV show Mac. That's where your dog's trying to survive. It's, right. not, it's not like here. Right, like and plus place. people were trying to catch them to eat them because they were starving. So the dogs had a fear of people as well as all the other stuff that you just said. Amazing. And so that's what, uh, like one case account tells how the people is, is in Holland. And in Holland, they had what was called the hunger winner. And they had been cut off. The Americans were trying to cut off the Germans, and they cut off all the supplies, the Germans and the Americans, the Allied forces, to this one section of Holland. So there was no food. It it got so desperate, people were eating tulip bulbs. And tulip bulbs are poisonous, by the way. And their dog was, was at the point of starvation so bad that they finally decided they had to kill him. And what they did after they killed him, the father took the dog's body and buried it in a place where nobody could find it because people were taking these dogs, digging them up and eating them. And a lot of people in Holland couldn't, even though they were starving themselves, couldn't bring themselves to eat their dogs. And so they'd hide the bodies. 
You know, so, there's a long, I mean, Jewish people all over the world. When you hear Dutch, when you hear Holland or Italy, we are feeling warmer because, you know, you look back at the record of all those countries, and I'm including Canada, all the countries during the Second World War were not putting their neck outs for the Jews. The only countries, Italy did not turn us over. Many, many, many people were hidden in Italy and priests participated. It's one of the only countries that did that. And even more so, Holland. Actual regular Dutch citizens put yellow stars on their coats so that the Jewish people wearing them would not be singled out and deported and killed. Holland has a tremendous record, the Netherlands, with the Jewish people and great connections to this day with the state of Israel. So when you mention Holland as as an exceptional place in their feeling for animals, it totally makes sense to me because they had much more compassion for this other, in other places, hated minority than the rest of Europe. In, in to such a remarkable degree, if the rest of Europe was like Holland, the Holocaust wouldn't have happened. That's the fact. You well, know? You, if, you, don't, you don't know that for sure, because first of all, what I mm-hmm. point out in my book, for each country that I cover, I have a little history of what was happening at that time in front of each chapter. Because people don't realize today, especially the young people today, don't realize that there was no communication for people, no way for them to get reliable information about what was going on. They had radios, but they were controlled by the Nazis, so they got propaganda. They didn't have TV. Occasionally, they would get a newspaper, but that could be weeks old. There was really no mass communication or way to reach them that they could find out what was happening because people say, well, why didn't the Jews just leave? Why didn't they go? Because they didn't know the extent of what was happening. Even well, the non-Jewish. And when they did, no, and when they did and when they tried, many, many times they were turned back into the sea like the boat people 30 years ago. It, it was, it was too back late. Countries like Canada had policies, none is too many. They were letting in more war criminals than they were Jews. So there's a reason the Jews of that time couldn't go anywhere. Nobody was really taking them in. And that, you know, that still hurts. We still know that. We still remember that. Right, right. But they also didn't know in time to leave in time. I mean, there's a couple accounts where they try to run away and the army's like right up behind them and catches them. And there were some people that didn't believe that this could possibly happen. And again, without graphic TV like we had in Vietnam was the first war where we actually watched the wars that was being fought. They didn't have that back then. They didn't have computers. They didn't have telephones. They didn't have the Internet during the war that, you know, they could find out this information. They certainly didn't have cell phones. So it was a whole different level of communication back then. The radio was the chief means of communication and the newspaper. And they didn't, like I said, they didn't always have the truth. They didn't know. They didn't believe. It's that control. It's the state control. And I think of today, there are places where there is television, but in much of the Arab world, it's very controlled. Uh, In China... They have Google, but it's, it's censored Google, right? So right. how much real news are they getting, you know? And that's today with all the technology mm. that we have. Yeah. You know, and that's where people have to realize that when they say, well, how could they not know that there was a concentration camp on the other side of their country? Or how could they not know this or that? And this is how they could not know. Now, I'm not saying that all the people didn't know, but not everyone knew. You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And there were kind people caught within it that, yeah. you know, not everyone was, I suppose, intentionally harming Jews. Of course not. But at the same time, the difference in, in how, and, and even how Germany, you know, where they put their concentration camps, they put them in the countries that hated Jews the most, mostly Poland. Right, I right, mean, right. you know, there was a cleverness here. They didn't put them in Holland and they weren't going to put them in Italy, right? They couldn't. It wouldn't have gone. So I think there is something to what you're saying about the communication of lack of knowledge. But there was, at some point, people knew. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But that's why when they discovered these camps, the soldiers were told, uh, I think it was Eisenhower, I'm not sure, that said, take all the pictures you can, because he wanted to document, because people wouldn't believe unless they saw it. But, you know, it's again, the thing that came out when I did this research, there were two accounts. One of them I just explained about the German soldier showing compassion for Mm -hmm. the dog. The other one is about an Italian who hid, he called them his Jews, and he took them to an island and protected them throughout the war. And then at the end of the war, helped them get wherever they wanted to go. And I have one of those accounts in there because the girl had to flee and uh, leave her dog behind. But I'm surprised... Oh, what kind of dog was that? What did that, she was, that was a wired hair fox terrier, and that's the only other picture I have of a dog. So and, that was, and the man who saved her, what was his name? Because I don't think we give those people enough, enough faith um, gratitude. I have to look back here. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> what a lot of effort. Well, this is it. This is it. And... Uh, it's sort of like the Schindler's List story, only Schindler was profiting. You know, right, this, this right. is completely just a gift, a person I don't, who cares. I don't think she had to remember the man's name because uh, she's an Italian commander in charge of the island. And uh, I don't see his name in here, which is why I couldn't remember it. But <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty amazing that he did that, though, at such personal risk, I'm sure. Well, you know, that's Mussolini wasn't to be messed with, was he? It was a dangerous time to defy orders, for sure. Well, you know, that's the other thing that came through when I did my research, is that people forget the Germans were forced. A lot of the soldiers were forced to fight. They didn't want to fight. And the SS and uh, Hitler basically told them, if you don't fight, we're going to kill your family. So there were a lot of German soldiers who didn't necessarily hate the Jews or even want to fight, but Mm -hmm. had no choice. And the Italian commander and the German soldier that helped the French lady are examples of kindnesses that they showed to people. And I'm sure the soldier that took care of the French bulldog would have helped the woman if he could have, but they always couldn't do that. Okay, well, we've talked more about dogs and cats. We talked a little bit about the cat in the Anne Frank story and the cat that that was hiding with Anne Frank's family and the other family in Holland. But uh, when we come back, we're going to go to another commercial break. Stay tuned to Animal Party on Pet Life Radio. When we come back, we'll be talking to Sue Belanda just a little bit more. And I want to ask her for a cat story for all you cat lovers out there to connect you to the time and the place. You're hiding your family's in danger, you've been hungry, you've been out of work, your whole community is under siege, you have these pets and these kids in the house. And now, nowadays, you're probably gone. It's only the kids that are left, and these kids are elderly adults, but they still remember that dog or cat they had to leave behind. They still think about what happened. And we've got a few stories of some of those pets that, what happened to them when the Holocaust split them from their Jewish homes and set them out on their own. So stay tuned. Animal Party Pet Life Radio will be back. 
Don't leave this party before it's over because the best is yet to come. Only losers leave the party early anyway. Party on. Back in a few. Dog Shelter Blues, the new novel by Mark Conkling. This hard-hitting story lights up the world of animal rescue with engaging characters and their pets, struggling with their own internal demons as they attempt to rescue innocent creatures that sometimes bring a mysterious transforming power to broken lives. Read the first chapter of Dog Shelter Blues free at dogshelterblues.com and come along a breathtaking journey that ends with an astonishing triumph of good over evil. Order your copy of Dog Shelter Blues today. Available at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Are you crazy about cats? If so, check out The World is Your Litter Box, Deluxe Edition. This clever how-to manual for cats, written by a cat named Quasi, contains more laughs than should be allowable in one book, and is poignantly underscored by the combative yet loving relationship between Quasi and his human. The World is Your Litter Box, Deluxe Edition, is guaranteed to have you laughing your tail off. So, treat yourself to a copy today. Available from Amazon. Hi, I'm Dr. Jeff Werber from Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff here on Pet Life Radio. We want to hear from you. Listen in. We're on every Thursday, 1 o'clock Pacific Time, 4 o'clock Eastern Time here on PetLifeRadio.com. We are one of the only live shows on Pet Life Radio, and I'm here to answer your questions. So you can call in at 877-385-8882, or you can drop me an email to drjeff at PetLifeRadio.com, and hopefully we'll see you here on Thursdays. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs> You're inside the VIP room. With the hottest party in town. Back to the party. Let's go! Hello, you're back on Animal Party on Pet Life Radio. It's Deb Wolf, and I'm interviewing Sue Bulanda. She's going to come back again, Sue Bulanda, and we're going to talk about scenting dogs. How is it that the brain of the dog actually contracts something? How is it that they do this? I mean, we know their noses are better than ours, but it's more than that. They're not just sniffing the air, or are they? Are they sniffing the ground? Are they sniffing the air? Are they going in a circle? Are they going in a zigzag? We'll ask her all of those things on a future show. But today we're going to ask her about the cats. Maybe a cat or two, maybe just one. A cat that was in the wrong place at the wrong time living with a Jewish family. If that cat had been living with a German family, it had been all right. But it was living with a Jewish family and the Holocaust came. Probably a kid was really attached to that cat and had to be pried apart from it. So, Sue, can you tell us one of the cat stories in the book, Faithful Friends? Well, there's one that struck me, and uh, I only had brief contact with the, with the person in charge, the person that told me the story. The family was herded up, as most people know, they would go around to the houses, the soldiers would go around to the houses and force these families out of their homes, give them five minutes to pack some clothes or take some stuff and line them up in the street and march them off. Well, this was happening, and a couple of times, according to the person that related the story to me, a few people would argue and give the soldiers a hard time, and the soldier would just shoot them. So they um, took only shooting one or two people for everybody else to not argue with the soldiers. Well, this family was herded up. They were in the street. They were lined up, and the woman turned around, and she begged the German soldier, please, please, let me go back 
and open the door to my house so our cat can get out and survive. And that struck me because she knew that they were shooting people that were giving them a hard time, yet she was willing to risk her life to go back and open up the door of the house so the cat could survive. And the German soldier let her do it. Nice. That was was one account. And then the other account, this young girl and her younger yet brother were being hidden in a farm by uh, a farmer and his wife. And they had to hide in the barn. But the farmer, and you have to realize, the farmer and the farmer's wife were risking their lives doing this because the Germans would kill people that hid Jews too. Or send them off to the concentration camp. Oh, of camp. course. Of course. Anybody, you're not, on, you're not on our team, you're on their team. All the That's way. That's it. Yep. Including was, that man who was married to the Jewish woman. If they'd found out, he would have gone too, probably. So right. he turned her in. But she made the wrong choice in marriage, I tell you. Woo. Right. <laughs> but anyway, so these two children, their mother, their father, and other relatives were in the ghetto. And in the beginning, from what I understand, the Jewish people could come in and out of the ghetto. Later on, they couldn't, but in the very beginning, they were. So these two kids left, and this farmer and his wife hit them. And um, she went with the woman, the farmer's wife, to the market, because they would, like I said, they would go sell their produce. And she just got so homesick. I mean, the stress, and the story goes on to relate the stresses in the life and what it was like being hiding. But I can just imagine that kind of fear, that kind of stress, being away from your parents and just having that feeling, if I could only go home, I would feel better. If I could just see my house, if I could just go back to my neighborhood, I would feel better. And this girl did that. She asked the farmer's wife and the farmer's wife said, no, absolutely not, because then they'd know she was Jewish and who she was, but how she'd go to. And there were people that were not Jewish that might see her and and then report it. So it was not a good thing at all, but the girl could not resist and she snuck back to her house. And there sitting on the front steps was her cat, her beloved cat. And the cat got so happy to see the girl that she came meowing and running up to her because the cat was just so happy. And I can relate to that because if I go away for a weekend and leave my cat, boy, I I hear it when I come home. But (laughs) she lets me know. (laughs) But anyway, this poor girl didn't know what to do. So she hid the cat in her arms and put a kerchief over her head. And, And for those younger people, a kerchief is a scarf that women wore a lot to hold their hair down and and keep the hair out of their face. And um, she brought the cat back with her to the market. And when the farmer's wife saw that, she went ballistic because she knew what the girl had done. She knew where so, she'd been. Yeah. Yeah, she knew what she did. And uh and I'm not gonna, you know, tell you the whole story. You have to read the book, but that was the desire of that girl to go back home. I can relate to that. I can relate so to that. So strong. You know, you know, some of these people I've met, I've met Holocaust survivors who were kids at the time and um, in Israel, but also here. And uh, I've had um, occasion where they've come and spoken to a class of children about the Holocaust and told their personal story and showed a tattoo on their arm and, and things like this. And it's just, 
it's unbelievable to see the strength in some people. It's just yeah. unbelievable to see what they can get through and what they and I don't think they ever recover fully. I don't think it's possible. I think it changes them forever. But it's an amazing thing if you ever have the chance to hear the story. And many of them don't want to tell the story. But if there's somebody you know that has a story and they're willing to tell it, let your kids hear it. It's so important. I know it's unpleasant, but it's so important. Well, it is because, as they say, history tends to repeat itself, and I can see happenings along that line in the world today. So it's a lesson to learn, and, you know, certain maneuvers and political moves that Germany made at the time and why, it's important to know the whys of it. It gives you insight into some things that are happening today. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping my book is going to spark enough interest in people that they would look a little further into the history of the Holocaust and into the history of World War II. And I want to just mention that there were other events like the killing fields in, in uh, Asia. I mean, there were other times in history where people were mass murdered because of their beliefs. You have that in Africa today where tribes will kill members of another tribe for no reason except that they're an opposing tribe. Oh, in former Yugoslavia, the Serbs and the Croats, there's a lot of places in the world where there's, you know, kind of one nation pitted against another within a country. That's right, that's right. And that's where the lessons from the Holocaust, which is done and over, and we have all the records, are so important to study because then you can compare it to what's happening today and be aware. And, and be, by being aware, hopefully will help to prevent and solve the problems that bring it about today. Yeah. So there, you know, it's there a is slippery slope, what you're saying, because it didn't happen overnight. It was a tiny little rule here and a tiny little rule there and a quota put in here. And before long, the Jewish community was living as a completely substandard class within the society where they had once been part of, in some cases, the elite, been mixed within and right. had been invited to be there so that business and commerce would come to Germany. So the reason there were so many Jews in Germany and Poland was because they were asked to come. And yeah. then that didn't go so well. So the slippery slope and identifying, you know, when your government's taking rights away, when they're infringing too much, when minorities aren't being respected enough, when it becomes a danger. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to only, I mean, obviously, it's not just Jews. It could be any minority. The weakest group you've got is the one they're going to go for, usually, or the one that has something they want. But, you know, in any society, you've got to make sure the weak are protected. And I think that's kind of the, how we should be judging society, really. Not who has the biggest houses, you know. Yeah. How are your people? How are the people? Are they educated? Are they healthy? Are they cared for? Are they safe? Right? Right, right. I mean, but, but there's lessons that apply to today, and that's the main point. And I hope that my book will help in a little way to enlighten history, to give a new perspective on World War II, and also to tell the truth that not everybody was bad in, you know, the Axis forces. They were not all bad individuals. I'm not saying Nazism or what happened was good, but it doesn't mean every single German soldier or every single soldier, you know, in another country was bad. Um, you know what strikes me about that is that the way people can sometimes compartmentalize their thinking. So, I mean, even in the movie Schindler's List, there were scenes where this man was so horrible to his domestic servant and so okay with his family or his dogs, yeah, yeah. his wife. I think he had Weimaraners. I can't remember exactly. But, you know, how, how people can be so cruel to a certain group and, and loving. I mean, you can think back to the 
to the time of slavery in the United States. There were people who were very kind to white people, but not, a, not at all all right with their black slaves. And, and this kind of thing, I mean, it's, that's a good lesson to learn, too. You know, that, right. that there could be so much compassion for animals and so much coldness for the humans in this situation. That's crazy. That's upside down, you know? Right, right. Well, you know, and today, and people get mad at me for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> okay, go for it. <laughs> breed specific legislation. Yes. The whole persecution of pit bulls. Rottweilers and pit bulls. Rotties are in there too, unfortunately. Well, there was a time it was Dobermans. It seems to shift, but right now Mm, it's mostly pit bulls. And what I tell people, because I get asked this all the time, the pit bull or the the Staffordshire Terrier are bred not to bite people. And people will look at me like I got three heads and say, well, what do you mean? (laughs) "Well, Well, the fact of the matter is these dogs were used for dog fighting. And that's why they call them pit bulls. They were put in a pit and they would fight them. But they also, the handlers had to be able to reach into that and pull these dogs apart while they're fighting. And these dogs were bred not to bite the handler, which any other dog would, in redirected aggression or just the reaction, would turn around and bite. Or barrier rage. When they can't yep. get at the thing they want to attack, they attack what they can get at. You know, that That's happens a right. lot, and the dog isn't even thinking. He's so high on his adrenaline. That's and his, right. You know, That's right. And, yeah, and yet, because of the way people have raised the dogs, and I'm not saying pit bulls are not inherently more likely to attack another dog. That's what they're bred to do. But the whole thing about pit bulls biting people is against what the breed was bred for. And when I hear about breed-specific legislation, you know what I say to people? Well, whoever's passing that legislation and whoever came up with that idea that all pit bulls are bad is agreeing with Hitler. Oh, that's where you're going with this. I was See? wondering where you were going to see. I thought you were heading toward, a, you know, and just a teaser for the next time we get together on the radio and talk no, about dogs. No, but, but you were but going you... somewhere else entirely. You know what I find difficult, and this sort of ties in, who's a Jew? Who's a pit bull, right? Well, right. if you kind of look like a pit bull, you're a pit bull. If you hang out with pit bulls, you're a pit bull. Like, I can't get over how many times there's a report on the news, pit bull attack, and I click on it on my computer or I look at the news closely. That's not a pit bull. That's a ridgeback. Well, that's a shepherd cross. Oh, that, okay, it has a round head and floppy ears. Yeah, I see. It has two traits of a pit bull. That ain't no pit bull. And it bugs me that they're always doing that, that they're always mis, you know, mislabeling dogs. And, and so pit bulls get the same with Rotties. Anything yeah. black tan gets called a rotty, and it doesn't yeah. matter if it's a, you know, half the size of an actual Rottweiler. Oh, that happened to me because I had my search dog years ago was a Boceron. Now I had, uh, matter of fact, he was the first dog in the United States to be used for search and rescue, and nobody knew what they were because at the time there were maybe ten or twelve of them in the country. And he barked at somebody once, and the lady got upset and said, "Those are the dogs that kill people." I said, well, it's not a Doberman. <laughs> it's a well, then it's the other dog. one. She says, then it's the <laughs> other one. And, you know, they don't even look like them. <laughs> oh, you know what I love? I love the mistakes. 
Now, I know people are going to get upset with me here because this sounds really <laughs> us, but when people say to me, oh, I had a Rockweiler for years, I just, I mean, or my dog has hip displacement, like these mistakes people make, I know they mean well and everything, but if you own it, can't you read the name and get it right? It's a Rockweiler, people, <laughs> R-O-T-T. It doesn't eat rocks. It isn't a Rockweiler, even though rocks are tough and so is he. It I know. How many times have you heard breeds referred to wrong? I'm sure you have quite a bit. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's the funny. Burmese well, mountain dog. It's a cross between a cat and a dog. It's a Burmese mountain dog. <laughs> right? <laughs> that one I love. Well, the funniest, when I had my Rottweiler, she was a really, really sweet dog. And I was walking in Williamsburg on vacation with her, going down, you know, walking around downtown. And somebody said, Whoa, what a nice rototiller. Rototiller? <laughs> a rototiller. <laughs> okay, now that's, that's a good one. I'd keep that one. Yeah, <laughs> or my dog's going to be spaded. I mean, there's so many. There's so many. I can't even, I can't even begin. To oh, talk. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. It is funny. I mean, I, I... Are you digging him into the ground? Is he doing gardening today with you? He's going to be spaded. That's very interesting. Well, okay, so Sue Bolando, we were talking about faithful friends and the pets who lost their owners and the owners that lost their pets in the Holocaust. If you have any stories like that, she wants them. If you know anybody who's interested in this topic, any kids, any classes, she wants to know about it. So go to, can you tell them again your Gmail, Sue? It's sbolanda gmail.com. Is that it? Yep. It's sbolanda. That's S as in Susan, B-U-L-A-N-D-A.com. And okay. there's a wealth of information. I have cat articles, dog articles. There's all kinds of stuff on my website. Very cool. All right. So, everybody, we'll be back with Sue another time. I'm going to book her right when we get off the air today because <laughs> I want to have her back talking about how dogs really do this. Like, how, how? How can they sniff a dirty sock and then find the guy who, who was wearing it? And how can they go into a field and know exactly where the duck is. And what are they doing? Like, how come some dogs go round and round and other dogs go back and forth? And you know yourself, you throw the ball for your dog, he has a pattern. He always does the same thing. But it's not the same pattern as some other dog, maybe. Maybe you've had a dog before that did a different pattern. What is that? Okay, Sue, you're going to have to tell us, but not today. Will you come back? Sure I will. (laughs) Okay, thanks very much. All right, everybody. It's been Animal Party on Pet Life Radio. We've been talking to Sue Belanda about faithful friends. That's the book. Look it up. Find it. Buy it. Share it. Tell the stories of the animals and the Holocaust and uh, the people, too. Thanks, everybody. Until next time on Animal Party with Pet Life Radio. Be good to your animals. Let's Talk Pets. Every week on demand. Only on PetLifeRadio.com.